Well, as you may have heard, in Vancouver, there is an empty homes tax, and we are now getting some numbers saying that the first year of the empty homes tax in the city of Vancouver has generated about $38 million, and that was more than originally projected. Sounds great, doesn't it? But when you dig a little deeper into that number, it becomes clear that it's really not clear as to what that money will go to, what this has actually done when it comes to units on the market, rental units, people being able to afford rental units. And asking some of those questions is architect and planner Michael Geller, who has been on this program before, and he joins me again on the line. Uh, Michael Geller, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, One of your uh, tweets uh, responding to one of the stories on this starts off with, hang on a second. Uh, What are some of your concerns with the fact the city is saying, hey, we raised $38 million uh, from this empty homes tax? Well, first of all, the city says it expects to raise $38 million. I think it's raised $21 million so far, and that's not to be sneezed at. But I think it's important to go back to what this tax was all about. What it was all about was that at the time, the mayor believed there was something in the order of 25,000 empty homes in Vancouver which should be brought into the rental market. And uh, I agree that at at this day and age, there seems something wrong when there's a shortage of housing to have other people sitting with homes that are completely empty. The problem I had, though, from the beginning is this so-called empty home tax. And I say so-called because if it's a home, it's probably not empty. If it's a dwelling, it might be empty. But they went after not just the empty dwellings, But the second homes of a lot of people, people who might live in the Sunshine Coast and keep an apartment in Vancouver, or the former mayor of an interior city who keeps an apartment in Vancouver. So all of these were caught up in it as well. And I had a real problem with that because those people, I think, contribute to our economy. They are legitimate homes. So that was my, my, my concern. But the second concern is the city issues this sort of report, and it's nicely done with pictures. It really downplays the fact that they've spent something in the order of $10 million to administer the program. But I think the bigger question is, is it actually resulting in more rental apartments or rental houses on the market? And I think that information is definitely not there. It also doesn't seem to answer the question, even if it is leading to some more units coming on the market, there there is nothing to say they are so-called affordable units. They could be units that rent for four, five, six, ten thousand dollars a month. And that would still be counted, I think, as a unit that comes back on the market, but does nothing when we're talking about affordability. That's right. And indeed, the only apartment that I'm aware of that came onto the market was a $5,500 a month apartment in uh, False Creek, the Olympic Village, where the owner told a friend of mine who rented it that he decided to bring it onto the market so he could avoid paying the tax. But in nearly every other situation, and I've been inundated with emails from people who are caught up in this situation, People are not renting out their units. What they're doing is they're selling them. Now, some will say, well, that's pretty good. Sure, units that were someone's second home are now coming onto the market uh, as somebody's principal residence. Uh, But we're not necessarily creating the rental stock 
And indeed, uh, former Councillor George Affleck, who has participated in this discussion on Twitter, also pointed out when he questioned when the tax was first imposed, would there be any way of measuring whether or not it's having any positive effect? And staff admitted probably not. Hmm. It also it also raises the question that the fact that they've exceeded what they expected to bring in, some even calling it a windfall, that they are expecting the $38 million, does that not suggest that people are paying the tax? And yes, I get that that money is supposed to will now go to affordable housing initiatives, although I'm not sure there's any way to track that as well. But doesn't that suggest that instead of renting out their units, people are just sucking up? uh, sucking it up and paying the tax. There's no doubt that there appears to be something in the order of uh, just over 2,000 people who are paying this tax, which, if you do the math, it averages out around uh, $15,000 a year, which means that this is on average about a $1.5 million condo. Now, again, I don't want to dismiss the fact that the city is collecting more money than it's uh, going to spend to administer the program. I don't want to diminish the fact that the city now has more money than it can apply to a variety of programs. And to be fair to the city, it is indicating how it is spending. To give it a bit of uh, publicity, you may recall they even had a little kind of competition in the community asking people, how should we spend this money? But at the end of the day, the real concern that most people that I know in the housing industry have is that if we really want to increase the supply of rental housing, then what we've got to do is build more of it. And sadly, so many of the other programs that the governments are contemplating, including new rent controls, while they would seem beneficial and indeed may be beneficial for those who are currently renting over the longer term my colleagues are worried that we're going to see a real drop in the supply of rental housing especially if the province puts in new regulations so at the end of the day yes the city may get uh, 10 million dollars or so out of this tax or maybe even 20 million dollars in the first year um and there is talk of tripling it, and that's that's something I think we should discuss. At this stage, Jill, if the city wants to triple the empty home tax and go after those empty dwellings, I really don't mind. You know, I can, ex- I can understand it. But I would like to see the city exclude all of those homes that are occupied a few months of the year, albeit maybe once a week or once a couple of times a month, because I don't think there's anything wrong having those homes in our city and having those people in our city. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And we, we've talked to some of the people that are in that exact scenario, like you said, that might live on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, there was uh, the, um, the hospital worker, I believe she was a nurse, that lived in Salt Spring Island and had the place in the city as well. It does seem rather strange that these are people that are paying taxes, that are contributing to the economy uh, in Vancouver with the second, the second place that are being penalized. It is. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, My rabbi, when he first uh, saw some of my writings on this, said, you know, in a way, this is misnamed. This is really a jealousy tax. And what he was trying to say is a lot of people who are struggling to afford their first home find it really upsetting to see that there are people with two homes. And indeed, somebody posted on Twitter yesterday, people who own two homes are selfish. 
because they're taking away a home from someone else. And I think the person really believes that. But, of course, it's nonsense. (laughs) If we build enough homes, (laughs) if we build enough homes, nobody's taking away a home from someone else, especially a $3 million house on the west side of Vancouver or a luxury condo in Coal Harbor. But, you know, we also want to look for scapegoats. And, indeed, foreign buyers and people who are fortunate enough to own two homes seem to be the scapegoats. What I hope we can do, especially if the city decides to increase this tax, and I suspect it would be a popular move, is at least let's just go after the legitimately empty homes. Uh, Mayor Stewart, I know you're listening. Please, (laughs) narrow who is impacted by this, and you'll have my support to go to 3%. But please, don't put in a lot new rental restrictions such as saying any new rental apartment, if it becomes vacant, um, the rent cannot be increased. Or if a builder renovates a building, he has to let the tenants come back in at the same rent. I know the people who are renting right now listening to us, Jill, would say, why is he saying this? Well, I'm saying it because I just know from 50 years of experience in this industry that when you start imposing a lot of rental controls, you really do discourage supply. And what we need is a lot more supply. We also need a lot more rent supplements from the government to go to those who are in need. I know this is another topic, but it all kind of comes together because we may at the end of the day see 200 or 300 rental units come out of this program. And uh, yes, a lot of money for the city, but that wasn't the original intent. All right. We will leave it there. I'm sure we will talk about this again. But, Michael, thank you so much, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks for your interest. Bye-bye. And as you know, we've been spending a lot of time talking about ICBC and how the government is trying to bring the spending into check, put out the so-called dumpster fire at ICBC. Well, my next guest is ICBC co-chair with the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, and John Rice is with us on the line. John, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Jill. What are some of your concerns about what we're hearing from the Attorney General when it comes to ICBC, specifically the costs for ICBC that are that are tied to legal cases and legal challenges? Right. So um, what you're speaking about, Jill, is um, recently ICBC came out with a forecast of uh, project projected losses of some seven or eight hundred million dollars and. Uh, the Attorney General's take on that was the main driver or a key driver of the increase in those costs were because of um, strategic patterns or strategic behavior by lawyers to, quote-unquote, drive up cases. And um, it was a really surprising thing um, for the Trial Lawyers Association to hear from the Attorney General, um, of all people, the Attorney General, um, as you know, Jill, is um, sort of a quasi-judicial appointment. Um, it's a unique position among among cabinet members. Um, his role is, you know, um, his job is the administration of justice and the public interest. And so, for the for our AG to suggest that um, costs are being driven up only or entirely because of the conduct of lawyers, and to thereby imply that ICBC is some sort of benign or passive um, entity was quite surprising. I mean, um, 
you know, no one hires a lawyer because they want to. People hire lawyers when they're being bullied or mistreated by ICBC. And um, it takes two to tango. And the reason for why a lot of lawyers don't um, provide early disclosure of expert medical legal reports or push things into court is not because they want to take longer. It's not because lawyers want to spend more money on cases. And it's certainly not because their clients want to be tied up longer in legal proceedings. They do that because ICBC denies that people are injured, denies providing them with coverage for the rehabilitation benefits that they need, denies that their injuries are as serious as they are, and refuses to pay them fair compensation for the harms and losses that they've been caused, um, that they've suffered by the, by the reckless driving of somebody else. And then more to the point, I mean, the reason why um, ICBC has been in the mess that it has been over the last several years, Jill, is because we've seen a perfect storm. So we've seen the prior government take $1.3 billion in cash from ICBC's optional reserves that could have been there to use to address ICBC's financial shortcomings over the last couple of years. But that money was taken and not reimbursed to ratepayers, not put back into ICBC, was taken to fund other programs. Secondly, we've got a distracted driving epidemic on our roads. And so what we've seen is a massive increase since 2014 in not just the number of car accidents that are happening on our roads, but also injury severity. Because we have, you know, a generation of motorists who are so stuck on their smartphones that they're texting and driving or, you know, um, social media, not paying attention to what, what they're doing. And I mean, for the first time in my career in the last couple of years, I'm getting people with severe orthopedic injuries, fractures, you know, from being rear-ended, right? Because people, it's not just that they're, you know, being careless, they're not watching the road. Um, So those have been significant, probably the single biggest significant driver to ICBC's costs uh, has been distracted driving. So for, you know, and not to mention then how ICBC has been managed over the last decade. And let me give you the best example of that. Last year, you might remember, Jill, ICBC was initially forecasting around a $300 million loss. And then um, the Trialers Association and a number of other groups provided um, the Attorney General and ICBC with a number of ways that we could make ICBC um, more affordable from the uh, perspective of, of managing these um, litigated claims. So we were looking at ways to make our system fairer, faster, and cheaper, but without stripping people's rights. And what we tried to convince the government was, let's, um, if you're going to strip people's rights, let's do that last. So before you put this artificial cap on people's injuries, right, which is this quote-unquote minor injury scheme that the government has decided. Let's see if we can find other ways to save our system. But what ICBC did in response to the suite of reforms that we proposed them, which probably could have saved ICBC, we forecasted around 500 to 700 million a year. ICBC went and re-reserved all its cases, which basically said, get all your managers together and look at the most expensive or worst case scenario for all your files still pending on the book. So they re-forecasted their losses 
from 300 to 1.3 billion. I mean, can you imagine what 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 kind of a, a management oversight we'd have to have there for them to be off on their forecasts by a billion dollars? That's what insurance companies are supposed to do, right? Is to gather all, gather all our premiums, forecast their exposure, and invest the money so that there's enough money there reserved to pay out claims in the future. And instead, they're off by a billion dollars. Where was the accountability at ICBC for that? Why wasn't anyone fired, right? Instead, now we have the Attorney General saying it's all the fault of lawyers. It's, it, it's inaccurate, and it brings the administration of justice into disrepute. And when you look at numbers that were released in a recent report on ICBC, that was one of the lines saying the number of drivers who have retained lawyers has increased. But it's your argument then, or like you had said, too, it's it's your belief then it's not as though people want to be doing that, but they feel forced to. Well, right. So um, people don't I mean, representation rates are up. And I think that's also a product of the same people that are on smartphones, right, causing car accidents. Um, you know, if someone gets in a car accident, they pull out their smartphone, they Google ICBC, they Google ICBC claim, and they hear and they see, you know, the name of 10 lawyers and they can search cases and they can go to court registries. So I think we're dealing with a more sophisticated public in terms of access to justice and access to information about lawyers. But um, the real reason people go to lawyers um, is if they're being mistreated by ICBC. So it's no big surprise that in the last couple of years where ICBC's really ramped up its fraud program um, or allegations of fraud where, you know, you hear these radio ads and these TVs ads saying this is fraud and that's fraud and this is fraud. People, people get scared, right? They're like, oh, my gosh, am I going to get accused of fraud because I need more physio for, you know, my, my neck injury or whatever? And so, you know, ICBC, as much as anything, is driving people to lawyers. I mean, if people were treated fairly, right, and compensated fully, quickly, they wouldn't go to lawyers because they wouldn't feel like they needed them. And so to suggest, I mean, lawyers aren't doing anything different. That's what's sort of frustrating uh, from our perspective. And I've explained this to the Attorney General, is that, look, we're just doing what we do. Clients come to us. They feel that they need counsel to represent their interests against ICBC, which is a monolith in this province, right? I mean, it's a, it's a crown corporation. They're the only game in town. And I think because ICBC has that, um, you know, monopoly on the provision of basic insurance, if people aren't feeling like they're being treated by the only insurance company in town, where do they go? They go to lawyers to protect them and to make sure they're treated fairly. Uh, John, we'll have to leave it there. We could talk uh, much, much more about this, uh, but it is a very interesting topic. Uh, We will talk more about it. We're out of time today, though. Uh, But thanks for coming on the show uh, to, to voice your concerns. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Take care. If you drive and you drive through the Massey Tunnel, you know that it is one of the biggest bottlenecks in Metro Vancouver. But a new report that was actually taken to Richmond City Council uh, suggests that the idea of a 10-lane bridge could be dead. Uh, Let's bring in George Harvey. He is the mayor of Delta. Uh, Mayor Harvey, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. What a great morning. It is a beautiful morning out there. What are your thoughts on this? What does this mean for the future of any new crossing to replace the Massey Tunnel? Well, the 10-lane bridge was dead once the provincial government, the NDP government, actually uh, killed the contracts. 
But, you know, uh, during the recent city election, I heard really clear from our residents and businesses that they want this congestion fixed. You know, we in Delta are just tired of listening to the years of chatter about this engineering solution. But, you know, what keeps me awake at night is the problem of congestion, the economic hardship to our businesses, the effect on our quality of life here south of Fraser, and the ongoing ignored safety concerns to our Delta fire and police who have to respond routinely to accidents inside the tunnel. Uh, so what is the solution then? If the project as it was is dead, where do you go from there? Well, I recognize that this is the province's solution. They have to come up with it. I'm indifferent to the solution. I just want three things on whatever they come up with. One, it does not take away any of our Delta's agricultural land. Two, it does include a robust rapid bus transit system that will service the Highway 99 corridor. And finally, finally give commuters living south of the Fraser an efficient, reliable trans- transit alternative to the car. You know, our employers are having tremendous problems getting employees to their businesses. They're having problems getting their goods out to market. We need the solution now. We need the province to fix it. But wouldn't the, the, the 10-lane bridge, the way it was proposed, wouldn't it, ha- it would have done those things, wouldn't it? Well, according to the previous government, yes. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of concern, and I shared it, that it's just going to push traffic further towards Vancouver. So instead of you know the, the congestion uh, just staying south of the tunnel, it's going to be at the Oak Street Bridge. And that's got to be recognized. There should be no solution unless it has the opportunity for people who live south of the Fraser to finally have a solution to get out of their car. That is what's necessary. That has to be included in this solution. But again, it's the province's solution. They have to come up with it. And we're tired of the talking and engineering studies that go on and on. We need this fixed now. Uh, how much money? Was it about $70 million that had already been spent on uh, the bridge that's uh, now uh, dead in the water? Well, at least uh, more than that. As far as I'm concerned, from what I remember, it was more than that. But, you know, we've got to, you know, got to get over all this chatter. We've got to get on and get the province to come forward with a solution. And it has to work with the Metro Vancouver's regional transportation problem. We need to have a solution for the whole grid. But again, it's just years and years of chatter, and Deltons are fed up with it. We need it fixed. Is it a bit uh, concerning then to, there's been so much focus on what's happening in Surrey and the scrapping uh, or pu- putting on hold the LRT. I mean, there was concern about that, losing the $70 million or losing the millions of dollars that were already spent on that. There doesn't seem to be the same amount of concern uh, that uh, th- this is a, a, another project that's been scrapped, money has been lost, but there doesn't seem to be an alternative. Well, there's lots of concern here in Delta, and again, our businesses. And I'm really positive about the new mayor's council, which I'm part of, of course, is that the mayors of Surrey and White Rock, we've had informal discussions. We're going to get together at the beginning of next year, and we need to work together to say, hey, this 99 corridor is the province's. It's an important roots trade uh, goods movement corridor. It has to be attended to. But, you know, Premier Horgan, it's his responsibility. He has to get on with this. And he needs to get his staff working with the Mayor's Council and Metro Vancouver staff to come up with their solution that will work within what we need. Would you be in favour of another tunnel? I'm in favour of just getting this congestion fixed. Um, you know, I'd say I'm agnostic to the solution. I'm bullish on the fact that we've got to get the province to move forward. I'm tired of listening to them reading about reports. They've got to get on with it. 
It's affecting too many people right now, and it's just unacceptable. How much pressure do you think is there from the fact in that even on this previous project and the previous government love to tell us all that part of the reason we're doing this is to cut down your commute time so you can be home and spend more time with your family, which I think a lot of people uh, saw through a little bit, uh, suggesting that there's also a lot of pressure from the port, and it's about shipping, and it's about bigger ships being able to go up the Fraser River. How much does that come into play? All that, you know, again, that's all the chatter that we keep hearing. Um, they, sh- they can't get any larger ships up the river now. And the only people I listen to are the, the pilots, the pilots that work that river. And when we met with them individually, they said they can't turn around any ships bigger than what they have now. But the most important thing is to forget the chatter, get on with the solution, because it is choking us here in Delta. It's not unfair to people that live south of the Fraser. Uh, you, you mentioned, so this is a provincial issue. Uh, you want the province to act on it. Um, what happens next then as far as uh, this was a report that came to Richmond Council. Uh, are you concerned that this is something that came out in a report to Richmond? It wasn't even to Delta Council. Well, it was a report from Richmond staff to their own council. Right, uh, but it included somehow, comments from the transportation uh, minister. But it, well, I, I also met with the transportation minister, and um, I, you know, it's reality that the 10-lane bridge is not going to be built. They're not going to build the same bridge that the Liberal government approved. They've already killed it. But, and and I, I accept the fact that it should, you know, 10 lanes is something which is very hard for the public to accept. Uh, but what I need is an alternative to the car. We've got to get people out of their cars and when the NDP government removed the tolls, what we've been noticing is the single occupancy car is increasing because there's no tolls. But south of the Fraser, that's what my concern is as Delta's mayor, is we need the government, we need Premier Horgan to get on with it. They've got the study. They've, if they've got a solution, let's hear it. Let's get working on it. Let's implement it and free the congestion that is causing real problems to our economic uh, situation here in Delta. Is there a looking? At, is there any looking at a different location? Does it have to be where the Massey Tunnel is now, or could it be a different area, a different location for the crossing? We will not accept using any more agricultural land. And when you look at the crossing, where else are you going to go? Mm-hmm. Unless you go into agricultural land, and that's unacceptable. We lost over 100 acres with regards to the South Fraser Perimeter Road. We cannot afford to lose any more agricultural land in Delta. And I'm very firm on that. Our community is very firm on it, and so is our council. Because the previous project, too, was there some loss? It was in the Dees, the Dees Island area, but was there, there was some loss of agricultural land, wasn't there? There was, there was no loss. Okay. In fact, there was going to be a small gain. It was pretty well neutral, absolutely neutral. All right, well, we'll leave it there, uh, George Harvey, and uh, hopefully we will chat with you again when perhaps there's a, another idea on the table or another plan for a replacement. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. And thanks for the time. Take care. Well, this next story involves wasps, spiders, and zombies, and the connection between them all. Let's bring in Sam Strauss, a PhD student at the UBC Zoology Department, also the co-author of a new study. Sam, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I've read through this, and I still don't completely understand what's happening. So if you can explain, that would be fabulous. <laughs> what exactly was discovered when it comes to wasps, social spiders, and zombies? So we discovered um, a new species of wasp that will uh, basically do a mind control trick on um, a social spider. Uh, so these spiders live their whole lives in a colony um, 
And so they shouldn't be leaving, but the wasp, uh, it injects something we don't, we're not exactly sure, uh, but it, it causes the spider to think it needs to leave and then build a special web for the wasp. Uh, and then once the special web is built, it acts like a cage. It'll kill the spider and um, then continue on its life cycle uh, and develop into an adult. How did you discover this? Uh, it was this paper was about six years in the making of um, kind of a string of graduate students in my supervisor's lab, uh, and we all uh, it was like one the first person noticed something was going on, and then she kind of told the next grad student to come in, and then he got me interested in it, and so it was just um, many hours of watching and taking notes, and it was kind of always a side project for all of us, which is why it took so long. (laughs) And so from what I understand from reading this, so wasps manipulating the behavior of spiders, that's something that has been looked at before, but we've never actually seen it as complex and complicated as this. That's exactly right. Uh, So these types of wasps, what we call parasitoid wasps, are extremely common. Um, We think that there are more species of parasitoid wasps than really anything else in the entire world. What makes this really unique is that they're targeting a social spider, and sociality is extremely rare in spiders. Um, it's unlikely that you've ever heard of a social spider before. I have not. Um, <laughs> and my supervisor has been working on these social spiders her entire career. Um, and basically... They just never leave their colony unless um, they really have to. And so that's what makes this really unique is that it, it, the wasp tricks the social spider into thinking it's not social. So that sounds like the opposite, though. But so a social spider doesn't leave the, the web, but is that because it's social with other spiders? Yeah, so they work together to build one large colony. And so you'll just have a, a whole lot of small spiders together in one large web. Um, And they work together for everything. Um, They maintain the web together. Uh, This is in the Amazon where you have really large insects. And so by by working together, they're able to to capture those really large insects that they wouldn't otherwise be able to eat. Um, They will take care of each other's babies. And so they'll just live uh, in in these colonies their entire lives. except for in this case where, for some reason, it thinks that it needs to leave. And then once it does leave, it builds uh, a type of web it would otherwise never build. Um, and it's, it's the, the wasp is just taking over its mind and triggering some, some thing from its evolutionary past. And that's kind of a next step is, like, how is it doing this? Right, because, I mean, that's fascinating that, that the wasp is able to put something on this spider to change its whole life pattern. Yes, it, it is, and it's still largely a mystery as to how it does this. Uh, now, the zombified spider, so this spider goes away from the colony, uh, as you said, spins a new cocoon. What happens to it at that point? Does it remain a zombie? No, the wasp will uh, kill the spider as soon as it's, done its job Hmm. Um, and so at this point it's just the larva on the back of the spider um, and it's been slowly feeding on the spider for a couple weeks and slowly growing 
And then once it gets big enough, it does something to trigger the spider. And once the web is built, it, it needs all the rest of the food that's inside the spider to, um, to develop into an adult. And so it'll just essentially suck it dry and throw it away and then continue on with its life. So the wasp continues on. Does the wasp keep yeah. doing this? Uh, no, so they only do this once. Um, it's just to uh, get from a larval stage to an adult. And then it will go off and it will find a mate. And actually, this part of its life cycle is also a mystery. We don't know what these wasps are doing when they're, in a, when they're adults. Um, but eventually, it will find a mate. And then it will find a, a colony. And one thing we're interested in is, it, does it come back to the colony it emerged from? And that's another thing that I'm going to be looking at soon. Um, but yeah, and then it'll a female will lay an egg on another spider, and then that's essentially its life cycle. So would the wasps be able to survive without the spiders? No, it, they're a critical part of uh, the development of the wasp. Hmm. Now, am, I understand... Mm-hmm. Is this true that you have a tattoo of the wasp? I do. I personally think that they are beautiful. Um, and I just think, like, wasps and spiders are, they're just enemies everywhere you look. And I just think it's a, a great interaction. And I've, I've never worked on anything so cool before. And, yeah, I have a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to continue, then, the, this research. What, what's next in trying to figure out or solve some of these mysteries? Um, so, for me personally, I'm, I'm just going to be looking at um, whether or not the wasps will return to the same colony that they emerged from. Um, we think that this might be the case because uh, this particular interaction may be evolved because... Um, then the wasps have a stable source of hosts. And so, you know, it can, it can emerge and then, then come back and then its children will use this colony and we think that this will just go on in time. Uh, because with a solitary spider, you know, it kills its spider and then it's gone. And mm-hmm. then, you know, so uh, that's, that's what's next for me. Um, next steps for really completing the story that I personally won't be involved in are, you know, what is the trigger? What does the wasp do to make the spider leave? Um, There are some theories floating around there, but that's also still a mystery. Um, Also, what are these wasps doing when they're adults? That's that's a mystery, and that's going to be a really tough one to solve because these are really small animals, and you can't really just follow them around. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's kind of the next stages for figuring out more of like the nitty gritty details of what's going on here. All right. And just um, one more quick question. If somebody is so freaked out by this and they don't ever want to encounter this, where, <laughs> where do they avoid? Where do we find this happening? <laughs> this particular interaction is happening in the Amazon, uh, but parasitoid wasps are literally everywhere. Uh, there's probably hundreds of species in BC and you know what, you just don't see it because these are really small animals. And, you know, I think if you just go about your day-to-day life, you won't be affected at all. All right. We're not going to be taken over by, by zombie wasp spiders. Definitely not. <laughs> all right. Well, it is fascinating research, and I look forward to learning more about it and the more that becomes known. Sam Strauss, thank you so much for joining us and explaining it to us today.
right, bye now. Think back. Not too, too long ago, we were dealing with flooding in parts of the province, forest fires. We can look to uh, Californians who are still dealing with forest fires and huge wildfires in that area. And the list goes on and on. So looking at climate change, how do we as British Columbians survive? Joining me to talk about that is Deborah Harford, Executive Director of the Adaptation to Climate Change team at Simon Fraser University. Deborah, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Is it something that we're, we're, we, I would say we're paying attention to it. Are we paying enough attention, do you think? Well, that depends who you're talking to, Jill. So um, I can tell you that municipal planners are paying an enormous amount of attention to this, um, as are agriculture practitioners across BC, foresters, biologists, um, people who work in anything to do with how systems function uh, and design them and have to keep them going and replace them are thinking about this extensively. I don't think... Uh, you know, a lot of my friends, for instance, and, and just, you know, people who aren't actually working in this area aren't necessarily thinking about it very much. So when we talk about municipalities, I think the one that comes to mind for a lot of people is Richmond, uh, Richmond, uh, parts of Delta, where there are actually parts of those communities that are below sea level. There's a diking system. Is that, is that what you mean as far as they're looking at that uh, and, and looking years ahead as to what they might need to build or change? Yeah, absolutely. And much, much more comprehensively than that amongst all of the municipalities in, in Metro Vancouver, many of them anyway, they're thinking about everything from how we're going to deal with uh, extreme heat, uh, air quality issues, uh, sewer overloads from heavy precipitation events, um, and the, the, the really wicked problem of sea level rise, which we know is locked in, but is this kind of slow onset issue that nevertheless really poses enormous challenges for our coastal infrastructure and our valuable waterfront properties. And what should we be doing more? Because it is that kind of thing. Like you said, it's happening. It's, it's, it's happening slowly. So it's not as though we see it day to day. But what do we need to be doing then? It's not as though we can just build walls to keep the water out. What should we be doing? Yeah, well, in some places, that is what will have to happen. And Richmond definitely is a great example. And Richmond's been investing in sea level rise projection-based coastal protection for years because they have that exposure. Others are kind of just getting going. So there's many, many different things we have to do. One of them is reduce our emissions because if we let global, global warming go unchecked, it's going to be very difficult to adapt to that. And we do have time to reduce our emissions and reduce that trajectory. And Canada can play, all Canadians can play a big part in that uh, through doing things like eating a plant-based diet, driving and flying less, and voting and letting your leaders know that you want action on this. But in terms of how we adapt to changes that we can't stop, because even if we reduced all of our emissions today to zero, we have baked in some climate change because greenhouse gases stay in the uh, atmosphere for a long time. Um, we can plan all kinds of different things from care for vulnerable populations to increasing our sewer capacity to looking at ecosystem-based restoration because ecosystem components like living shorelines and parks even um, absorb carbon, but they also reduce urban heat and they absorb stormwater. So there's, there's a huge number of actions that actually countries around the world are taking from the Dutch to uh, people in developing countries to Europe. So there's kind of a big global community working on action on this. 
What do you say, though, to the the concerns of, yes, we can we can do all of that. And especially anybody living in Vancouver knows that uh, the previous council and mayor in Vancouver, one of the big pushes was to make Vancouver the greenest city on the planet. And that's great. But it's not as though the planet knows where Vancouver's boundary is and where the next city starts or the next country. And if other countries aren't doing this, how is reducing it simply in Vancouver or Metro Vancouver or even B.C. going to make a huge difference? Well, other countries absolutely are doing it. And actually, I would say North Americans are seriously lagging behind. So um, we are the highest per capita emitters in the world. We're we're up there in the top six, along with the um, Middle East and the U.S. And and so what our lifestyle is being exported to other countries. So people want to live like us. If we can't show them how to do it, then they're not going to do it. That said, everybody else is actually acting on it. You might be surprised to know that China, for instance, is one of a big, huge leader in emissions reduction. But they're also leading in terms of um, the kind of greening of cities that I talked about, which achieves both emissions reduction and helps to deal with this urban heat and uh, extra flooding that we're going to get. So they're pioneering stuff. They're calling sponge cities or forest cities. Um, You can look to Denmark. Uh, as another great example, Copenhagen, the Dutch are taking people out of the areas where sea level rise is affecting them. They're actually doing a massive amount of retreat. They're buying out properties and people are, you know, moving because they can see those problems. And I think the wildfire smoke is a good example here of um, the fact that I think that woke up a lot of Canadians to the fact that we really do need to act. Um, I think we need to do a better job of letting everyone know what they can do. And uh, I'd be happy to talk more about that. Well, and I think that's one of the big questions, too, in that, and even this past week, I think we saw the push again saying that by 20, was either 2040 or 2050, uh, that there would be no gas, uh, no gas combustion engines in vehicles in in Vancouver. Uh, But I think it just, that just seems like, A, it seems like a long way away, which it's not really, but it does seem like a long way into the future. and, And people wondering, well, how is that actually going to happen? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's a technological revolution sweeping the planet right now where it's, it's hard for us to take in because if you think about the time before we had the, the cheap fossil fuel revolution, people would have been very hard pressed to imagine anything like an iPhone, let alone uh, the kind of mass production that we have going on. And I think we're, we're really in a, uh, living in an exciting time in human history because there are big brains all around the planet working on these issues, everything from, you know, disparate things like plastic reduction, uh, which is also related because it's fossil fuel based as well. Um, So I think we're going to see some really amazing innovations and new business opportunities that people are going to be taking advantage of and then exporting all around the world. Um, But it is a transition and it's uh, it's going to take all of our uh, combined efforts in terms of personal actions like reducing our consumption, but also, um, you know, contributing ideas about how we can make these changes. Um, So it's going to be something we all do together. Um, But I think that people are underestimating perhaps the advancements that are being made in terms of electrification, the kinds of vehicles that are coming out. I mean, Mazda and Lexus. Um, have both announced, I think Volvo as well, that they're all going to move to hybrid or electric vehicles. And with that kind of power from influential industries, we're going to see major changes in much shorter time than you'd think. Uh, what about things like air travel and uh, people vacationing? And there's still, I mean, people in, in Vancouver in the winter like to get away from the gray rain that we see here. Uh, there's certainly, there, are, there, there is, air travel doesn't seem to have slowed down at all. 
Yeah, no, I think air travel is a real a, a major head scratcher because I don't think it's very difficult to make a solar powered plane that can carry lots and lots of people. So, um, I mean, for instance, just to talk about myself, um, I'm being invited to a lot of conferences around the world. I think anybody working on climate change is. I'm saying no, and I'm saying, you know, in my not to all of them, but as many as I can. Um, just saying, look, I don't want to spend the emissions on that. Um, there is the concept of love miles where, you know, people will, you know, say, hopefully save up their carbon emissions to go and see loved ones. My mum was ill in February and, and uh, you know, I went to the UK and I felt that was justifiable. But um, I think there's basically a shift coming in our personal choices as we really start to realize that if we want our kids and our grandkids to have a planet that's livable, then we have to make some changes. All right, Deborah, we'll leave it there, but thank you. Very uh, interesting thoughts on that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Take care.